everyone and welcome to UCL Brain Stories. I'm Selena and I'm here with my co-host Steve. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. And today it's a momentous and exciting day because we've got our first ever guest on Brain Stories. Uh, So hopefully our first of many. Um, And we could not have asked for anyone better to kick things off um, than Sophie Scott, who's a professor of cognitive neuroscience at UCL and the head of the speech communication group. And she's also currently the director of the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience. So I was wondering, well, welcome, Sophie. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I was just wondering if we could kick off by, if you could tell us a bit about, you know, your background and what your your research is about. So I'm interested in um, the neurobiology of human vocal communication, basically. So I'm interested in, you know, how we control sounds when we make, when we do what we're doing now, when we speak or we sing. And I'm interested in how our brains perceive that as well. And I'm interested, that's often studied, and for a long time I studied that in terms of speech, and I've got more and more interested in like the wider world of human vocalisations, because actually you can consider the human voice to be a really complex sound, and like the most complex musical instruments that exist in nature, it's an extraordinary instrument, and it's um, quite unusual, there aren't many things, that animals that can make the sounds we make. Um, I actually started in biology my first degree was in biology and then I wanted to do I sort of learned about psychology and I did a psychology pathway through my biology degree and I wanted to study music and <laughs> I still don't entirely understand how that hasn't happened but I kind of feel more recently I've got slightly more back to music because I've been looking more at the sort of musical aspects of the human voice. Fascinating so how from biology to running your group at UCL what happened in between there kind of what's your journey in terms of PhD postdoc? I was extremely lucky. Um, I I went to Polytechnic of Central London where they did these sorts of very 1980s modular degrees so you could sort of do this psych- biology degree with a psychology pathway and I really enjoyed that. And I was, um, I didn't really want, know what I wanted to do next and one of my lecturers said, oh, you know, you should think about doing a PhD. And it had never occurred to me to do a PhD. So I went along to the careers office at the Polytechnic of Central London and I said, oh, I'm interested in doing a PhD. And they said, you can't do a PhD, you're at a Polytechnic. <laughs> so they said, apply for a job as a research assistant. So I started looking around for a job as a research assistant. And one of our part-time lecturers was still himself doing a PhD at UCL. And what he said, oh, my friend was always looking for um, research assistants. He's always getting grants and put me in touch with Pete Howell at UCL. And Pete Howell um, had been one of the authors, this is just serendipity, he he was one of the authors on the paper I based my third year dissertation on, which was on music. And so he was, you know, that that was just sheer chance. And so I applied to do a PhD with him. It was out of the normal PhD cycle, but some new funding got announced for a sort of cognitive science development across, this this is the early 1990s this is 1990 and cognitive science is quite new and uh, the research councils were putting studentships into this new field so I got a PhD place at UCL straight out of my first degree which is very you know I I wouldn't be able to I'd be very unlikely to achieve that now Um, and that that was it then I was at UCL I couldn't believe it it was brilliant so after my PhD and that my PhD was on speech because that was what Pete was working on by then he wasn't doing stuff on music anymore um and so I got kind of moved side into rhythm 
And I discovered at the end of that that um, no one was really funding research into that. I'd done a very, 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 very niche area. Um, and I this new PhD initiative in cognitive science that I did, um, they put quite a lot of funding into these summer schools that you go to every year and get to lots of different lectures, meet all the other students on the course. It was great, actually, from all around the UK. And I... One of those summer schools, I'd met some people working in HCI and I saw a job at human computer interaction, which was a sort of applied side of cognitive science. And I saw a job advertised with one of the people whose work had been discussed on the summer schools and I'd seen him give a talk. And I thought, well, I can do this job. I kind of know what they do. All the technical stuff, I'd done all my own coding and that kind of stuff for my PhD so I could do the computational side of things. So I applied for it as a bit of a long shot and got it. And that was really good because I had a really happy time. I really enjoyed being at the in Cambridge and it was a fantastic research environment and just a great place to sort of, it was very collegiate. You could get to collect, do lots of different collaborations. And that's when I was there, I started working um, with Andy Calder and Andy Young on um, patients with deficits in perception of faces. And they were interested, well, did they have a problem with voices? And because I sort of had that background, I was able to work with them on that. And I still do that kind of work. And I also got involved in functional imaging, which was just kind of getting off the ground at that time. So it was a very good uh, opportunity. And then I came back to London where the ICN was just starting and I wanted to be at the ICN. It seemed exciting. And I worked with Paul Burgess at the ICN. He wanted someone who could do functional imaging. So I was kind of making these slightly slightly sideways moves, but always getting some new experiences. And that's when I started applying for my own fellowships. And I was very lucky to get a career development award from the Wellcome Trust in 2001 I started building my own lab up from there so there is I mean it's such a fascinating journey through different areas of cognitive neuroscience so when you I'm just interested about the very the thing you said at the start where you said cognitive science was just getting going and I was wondering whether you could just like define what cognitive science as a field is and how what what was kind of in the air at that time it was actually very exciting because We'd been through the, obviously long before my time, we'd been through the cognitive psychology revolution in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And cognitive science was kind of a a highly formalised approach to cognitive psychology. So there was a lot of emphasis on modelling. And, you know, you you could have your psychological theory or your cognitive theory, say, of attention. But what would really matter was could you build a model that did that? Could you then tweak the model and see, you know, how that would relate to how different manipulations of an experiment might influence human behavior and it sort of disappeared quite quickly a few years later I think because of functional imaging. I was just going to ask from kind of my own for my own personal benefit really but also many of our listeners will be based more in kind of cell biology style labs of neuroscience so on a practical level how do you study things like vocalizations and you've talked a lot about functional imaging could you maybe give us the the kind of very kind of base level description of what that means so you're absolutely right people do mean a variety of things and they say functional imaging when I say it I'm talking about um, techniques like initially what I used was positron emission tomography and then functional magnetic resonance imaging what those both let you do I mean they're, they're different in how they work but what they let you do is look at new systems at a systems level by tracking changes in blood flow that are associated with regional cerebral activity so when your brain does a, a bit more work 
a bit more blood is almost immediately directed there and you can track that. You track it directly with PET by using um, you know, radioactivity counts to see where the blood is going. And you see it slightly more indirectly with, with fMRI because you're looking at changes in the proportion of oxygenated and deoxygenated uh, hemoglobin that's associated with these changes in blood flow. But they're both telling you the same thing. They're giving you a kind of map of activity in the brain and it's very, very general. So the smallest resolution is called a voxel and each of those voxels is picking up even the smallest ones is picking up you know millions of synaptic projections it is completely at the other end of the neuroscience scale from something that is looking at cells um so i find it quite useful actually because it's it gives you systems and it lets you look at networks and it lets you ask questions about those networks and you're getting a very general snapshot of that system so you're not I think that's useful, but you need to know about the other things that are influencing that activity. So what are the key questions that your lab at the moment are interested in looking into? Something that I'm very interested in at the moment is the the motor control involved in producing vocalisations and how that can vary with the kind of thing that you're doing. So because we've tended to study speech, and speech gives you a phenomenally reliable network of brain activations associated with speaking it's so reliable i could scan one person and tell you where i will see activity in their brain but speech is just one thing that we do with our voice and also speech is something that we do voluntarily and voluntary motor networks are different from involuntary motor networks and particularly and that's also um we also change our voices a lot we are i'm talking to you differently now than if i was um making stimuli for an experiment or if I was reading aloud or if I was trying to, you know, tell my son off or something, you know, there's these different, we actually change our voices a lot and we don't understand actually the kind of neural systems that are supporting that variation and the things that influence everyone on this call has been noticing when there's been echo and things like that. And one of the reasons why you notice is it makes it hard to speak. And there's a very, you know, sometimes you change your voice because of environmental characteristics and sometimes you're changing it for social reasons. People will talk differently the more they like the person that they're talking to. So there's actually a very interesting set of factors that are influencing the sort of modulation of the voice. And then, of course, if you look at something else we do with voices like beatboxing or singing, what are the neural systems that are sort of supporting that? So I think we I'd like to have a better understanding of that and also how that interacts with these involuntary vocalisations. I've been very interested in laughter for the past few years, but laughter is very interesting because it's a social emotion and it's something that lives in conversation. And I suspect that sometimes laughter is actually kind of associated with these older involuntary vocalisation pathways and sometimes much more part of these kind of voluntary communication networks. So actually getting to the dynamic of those systems is something I'd really like to know. And it's hard. It's very hard to do. Um, apart from everything else, it's really hard to get people uh, laughing in the scanner. But we're getting better at it. And I think it's going to be these sort of motor control networks. I think are going to be really important for understanding a lot of the the kind of complexities of human voices. So just on, on laughter, I was wondering, and this is a very broad and perhaps too vague a question, but do we know anything about the brain mechanisms for laughter, like that trigger laughter? Um, or is that still a kind of unknown territory? It's largely unknown. Uh, and that's partly because there's very few people doing it. Um, it's partly because it's really hard to do. So not only is it hard to get people to laugh in the scanner, but also when people laugh, they move a lot. And movement is a real problem for fMRI. You you lose a lot of signal. 
Um, so we've been experimenting with you know higher speed sequences where we can. And it, you know, there are technical things we've been trying to sort of use to get around that, but you're still left with a central problem that people. It's hard to get people to laugh. So there are there are some studies. There was a study from Germany showing that um, if you I think they tickled people's feet, if you tickle people and get sort of illicit laughter that way, it's slightly alarming um, thought when you're lying in a MRI machine, someone's fiddling with your feet. But um, but that that gives you activation in the hypothalamus, which you don't see when people laugh to command. Um, so, but I, there has to be more to it than that. So, for example, there's there's some very interesting suppression of motor control that happens when you start laughing very hard. If you're ever around somebody laughing hard, um, or if you're ever laughing hard yourself, try and do something fiddly. Try and you know do up buttons on your shirt or something, and you'll find you can't do it. And that's because there is this suppression of of a sort of spinal control of motor reflexes and postural reflexes that happens very very quickly with laughter so there's the that kind of the way that it's overriding other kinds of motor systems i think is very interesting and i don't think we have a good idea at all of how that's happening so when you start laughing really hard you'll find you can't talk and it'll be difficult to actually breathe it, it suggests that there's because i know you've talked about this in the past when you've given talks when you've shown these amazing um, clips of radio presenters losing control of themselves um, when they're laughing and so on. And it feels like there's self-control or kind of higher, me- the ability to control ourselves laughing seems to be also important there. Like, is it possible to do it? And and how that works seems to be very interesting as well. Absolutely. And I, I think if you look at professionals, like so corpsing in the theatre, actors getting the giggles on stage, Audiences quite like it, but it's considered to be very bad form. But you know, professionally, it's not a professional thing to do. And it, anecdotally, and the plural of anecdote is not data, but actors quite often try and deal with laughter by not letting it anywhere near them before they go on stage. And I, and that's I think what quite, people who manage to not get the giggles when they are on the radio are doing something similar. You kind of get in a mode where you're stopping the laughter, even getting to you because one of the problems is when it does start to have it on you it probably will make its way through there's that clip of James Nockety when he got Jeremy Hunt's name wrong um, (laughs) a few years ago and he (laughs) he then spent like then he managed to keep talking I think it was about WikiLeaks or something but he sounded like he was having a fight with like a big pig yeah and he was fighting with his own motor system that's what you're hearing and he managed to keep going that there was absolutely no question, but that there was something wrong. And he was like, oh, I'm, I've got a bit of a cough. No, I've not got a cough. That's not what's happening here. So it's, um, and I think I think that's why it tends to happen more often when people are in the studios with other people, you know, because you're more likely to get the giggles when you are with someone else than when you're on your own. And that kind of thing will feed into it as well. Great stuff. So, Sina, do you want to? Yeah, I was about to ask whether, um, inappropriate laughter let me see if I can phrase this correctly whether this can also be a sign of pathology in a way so I think about my own field one of my um kind of diseases of interest is frontotemporal dementia and we talk a lot about disinhibition in people who are living with frontotemporal dementia now is this something different because it's an involuntary process or is it something that, you know, we might gradually lose control, our ability to control ourselves in certain disease, 
situations. It's very, very interesting. And we have um, my PhD student, Sinead Chen, did a little bit, did a literature review on this because we actually have quite a lot of involuntary vocalizations. So, um, you know, I, a few years ago we had mice in the flat and I was in the flat on my own and a mouse ran over my foot and I properly screamed. Or I, th- I don't even know if a mouse did run over my foot. I just thought it had and I screamed and I screamed for long enough that I had time to think, I don't know why I'm screaming. I'm not scared of mice, you know, what's going on? <laughs> it was a completely involuntary vocalisation. And when it was slippy and icy earlier in the year and I kind of slid on a bit of ice and I found myself going, oh, you know, the, there are the, that, that's that reactive, that older reactive vocalisation network at play. That's it working. And most of them are pretty brief and they don't seem to appear as um, pathological signs. And the ones that do appear as pathological signs, so they are associated with some frequently, as you say, with like degenerative disease, some sort of progressive d- dementia, is laughter and crying. And laughter and crying are actually quite similar. They're not, um, they appear very early in life. They're actually made in very similar ways. And they both can overwhelm the motor system and they kind of hang around for a while. They don't appear quickly and then go. And there's something about the access that laughter and crying has to the motor system and its ability to kind of override voluntary motor systems or to be disinhibited in some way, as you say, that is different from other non involuntary vocalizations they don't see you don't get people showing you know continuous surprise noises it just doesn't happen in the same way so there's there's something about the characteristics of those emotions and maybe it's because they i don't know if it's because they have they have some early access you know because they appear so young or if it's because they are extended and unlike a sort of fearful sound or a surprise sound where you might stay scared for example but you don't continue making the noise you know the the the, the natural kind of the expression is something that is is lengthy but um there's something very interesting going on there and i would love to know more about it there must be as well a huge amount of variability in how susceptible we are mm. you know i think about people in my life who um you know i i some people who are very serious and i think i bet you've never cried with laughter um, whereas i think i'm quite susceptible to that <laughs> and do do we um hopefully not on this call yeah. um but do we know if there are things maybe genetic or otherwise that that kind of contribute to to that susceptibility well, it's a really good question. We've, we've been trying to look at this. Um, we've been developing uh, basically a straight down the line, you know, psychology questionnaire, uh, you know, picking out different aspects of um, people's experiences of laughter. And actually the biggest one that comes out is how much people think they laugh. So there is a very, very strong and actually the the sort of the dominant source of all the variation in people's experiences of laughter is this extent of how much they think they laugh. So people have some experience of being high or low on this measure. It does correlate with other things. It correlates with extroversion and agreeability, which are other personality traits. And extroversion is certainly something that does seem to have a, a genetic and a neurophysiological component to it. So the more agreeable extroverts think they laugh more, but the word think there is doing quite a lot of lifting. A few studies there are of, of comparing how often people think they laugh with how often they do laugh finds everybody underestimates it. And certainly our attempts to validate this questionnaire has shown that although people vary a lot in how much they think they laugh, they're all still somewhat inaccurate. So everybody's still laughing more than they think they do. 
So there is something quite interesting going on there. Um, there is a sort of dissociation. So definitely there is variation. People do vary a lot in sort of how much they laugh based on, again, this is on experience. But I think that might also be because it's very strongly socially modulated. You might encounter someone who you've never seen laugh, but actually in some other situation, they might be laughing a lot. You know, it, there's the sorts of factors going in there. So it's, it is a... It's a very interesting behaviour to study because it's very, very susceptible to exactly who you're with and exactly where you are, how much laughter there will be. Um, I can remember when I was a kid noticing that my father, whenever he was around his friends, like he had a lot of acquaintances, he was a salesman, but he had some who were his friends. He would admit, he'd become almost like kittenish with his laughter. It was incapacitated almost as soon as the friends arrived. And I, thought, I don't know how many of his colleagues would ever have seen that, you know? So that just again, plural of anecdote is not data, but it, it's so there's clearly this variation in people's experience, and it's interesting that it may be more complex in that when it actually gets out to the the existence of laughter in the world. I guess it's quite nice to learn that people laugh more than they think they do, rather than the other way around. That's quite a kind of <laughs> nice fact about yes, human nature. Definitely. definitely. <laughs> so I I just want wanted to um, bring it back to speech and. Um, the, over the past year with being kind of in lockdown and on our own a lot and you mentioned the motor system and speech and I'm wondering whether either you know the the role of um, that system in say talking to ourselves or inner speech and whether there's a way to try and get into that because I've definitely noticed that kind of just being in the house on my own and not going to work you end up kind of having this inner narrative that starts to kind of build a little bit. And I'm wondering whether there's any way of kind of getting a scientific handle on what we mean by talking to ourselves. It's actually a very interesting area of research. So there's a there's an argument that says um, even when we talk to ourselves, it's still kind of like a conversation. It's not a monologue. It's like you are having a conversation with yourself. And there's a, a psychologist um, at Durham University called Charles Fernyhoe who's he's done some, I mean, there's lots of people who've worked in this area, but he made a very interesting point that actually the nature of your internal conversation is very variable. Sometimes it feels like a kind of a like a, he uses the term a frame, like a sort of there are there are words associated with this thing, but it doesn't sound like a voice. And sometimes it gets more and more and more voice-like, and often that correlates with how emotional it is. You know, I'm walking on the street thinking about something. That if I start thinking, oh, Sophie, you know, you'd really cock that up or something. I'll, I'll frequently actually almost get to the point where I'm saying that last bit aloud. Sometimes it's so voice like it then actually starts happening. So that does seem to be something that's really, it's it's there, but sometimes it's very sparse and sometimes it's much, much more voice like. And that's not independent of the emotional tone of that conversation, for want of a better phrase. So there is, it's also got the interesting links to what people experience in terms of vocal hallucinations. So a lot of people hear voices that seem to be different from their inner conversation with themselves. It seems to be qualitatively different. And for a long time, it was associated with uh, sort of psychiatric diagnoses. And it's now becoming clear that for everybody with a psychiatric diagnosis who hears voices, there is someone without a psychiatric diagnosis who also hears voices. And it's very, very interesting to speculate or, you know, there's a lot of interest in trying to understand what, what does that actually mean? What is, is, is it, for a long time people thought like it was a, 
it was a monitoring error perhaps of your own voice, but it was a monitoring error of your inner voice? Or is it really some other experience of there being more than one voice that you're one of one of them is you talking to yourself and then there are other voices going on. So it, it is a, it's a very interesting world, this people's inner conversation or monologue and the other voices that might be kind of a background to that is very, very interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating, this idea of kind of the emotions kind of dominating the the talking to yourself. I guess the phrase kick yourself is yes. kind of like it becomes chastise yourself. And I definitely noticed that when you kind of get to that point where you you realise you've done something stupid and yes. you actually, under your breath, just say, why are you being so stupid? Um, yes, yes. Come on, sorry. <laughs> definitely noticed that. So I had a, another question, kind of moving a little bit away from the science now, but one of the things that... Um, we're aiming with this podcast as well is to kind of for people to get to know the person behind the science and one thing that I I kind of know about you is you're also a stand-up comedian (laughs) Um, and can maybe you could tell us a little bit about where that came from was that something that started before you started working on laughter as a result of working on laughter um it was it was actually it was it was a slightly strange journey so um I grew up in a house like my father was a big comedy fan and talked a lot about comedy went to see live performances I, I grew up in Blackburn and my father would routinely be going to Blackpool to see acts that was you know the sort of that was a, a normal thing um so you know it's everyone thinks they've got a good sense of humor and you're allowed to but I was I was kind of aware of comedy as a thing and I liked comedy and I was you know always enjoyed comedy as a thing to go and consume um and then I I was working on laughter and actually laughter is interestingly different from comedy and there are, you know, there's a psychology of humour and it does not quite the same as what's somewhat different in great ways from the different psychology and neuroscience of laughter. Um, So I always just took a bit of a body swerve around it and never thought about it again. And then about in 2008, UCL started this new public engagement unit and part of what they did in that was a thing called Bright Club and Bright Club was a comedy night where all of the acts, except for the MC and the headliner, who would be real comedians, all of the acts were UCL academics and students. And when I first heard about this, I thought, good God, who would want to do that? Why would you put yourself through that? You know, it sounds it sounds so stressful and so difficult. <laughs> absolutely terrifying. And I was like, and a couple of people from my lab did it and they did it well. And I was like, well, you know, good luck to you. I went to see them. Well done. Brilliant. I'm not doing that. You know, I was like, I'd just come back from maternity leave and I was like, I didn't, you know, I've worked really hard to get where I am. I'm not going to go and watch it all trickle away in a pub full of strangers not laughing. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And, <laughs> And I'd actually had like conversations with them about laughter. I'd, I'd talked to, they would give people training and I'd, I'd give them advice about laughter for the training. That was, you know, so I, I knew the people doing it and I was like, no way am I doing that. And also notably, they hadn't asked me. And then I was at some UCL event with, I'm not going to name him, but a, a male colleague about my age and seniority, a little bit more senior than me. And he was like, have you done Bright Club, Sophie? I did Bright Club and it was brilliant. I was very funny and everybody loved me. And I thought, you bastards you haven't even asked me you've asked him and it was brilliant uh so I was like oh you know I'll do Bright Club and then they immediately called my bluff on it and gave me a date and then I found myself like two months later locked in the toilets this would have been December 2010 locked in the toilets with my notes thinking what have I done professional jealousy take me to this mad place and then I did it and I absolutely loved it not at the time but there's a point afterwards when you come off stage and the MC goes everybody Sophie and everybody starts clapping and you're just like oh this can go on for as long as you want to like pure <laughs> dopamine being administered to your nuclear succumbents you know this is this is definitely the good stuff and I thought you know I want to do that again and I want to get better at it um 
so I found it very interesting as, as you know, I was 44 when I first did it and I you kind of think, well, this is how things are. This is what you've got now. This is the, you're not going to learn anything new. So it has been very interesting to learn a new skill, but it did also teach me a great deal more about laughter and audience laughter and the way that laughter is used communicatively than I'd ever realised. So I used to think that people, you know, I'd watched lots of comedy, but I sort of thought, well, you know, the, audience, the comedian is doing something on stage and then the audience are reacting. But it's much more of an interaction. It's much more like a weird conversation. And it's kind of coordinated by the comedian, but it's definitely the, the audience sort of start to coordinate their responses. So it is much, much more complex than I'd realised. And I would never have realised that or even thought about it unless I'd actually done stand-up. So I would say definitely if you have every opportunity, and I wish UCL would start um, Bright Club again because... You know, we've had a lot of really people like Hannah Fry, Mark Mardownick, Kevin Fong. They all came via that route, you know, and it's been a really, really positive thing for science and public engagement in the wider, wider world. There's a reason why we've had quite a lot of uh, Royal Institution Christmas lectures, for example. I think it's because people have come via that route. And I wish they'd start doing it again because it's a fantastic opportunity for people. It's good public engagement but it's really good for it's a really good opportunity for staff and students basically if you want an opportunity to really feel like you can own a room do stand-up comedy training you'll feel like you can do anything after you've done that that's fascinating about that interaction between um the audience and the and the comedian because i've found that when i've been trying to watch some comedy on tv during lockdown on netflix for instance and you just you just kind of think to yourself i want i went to watch that comedian live and it was fantastic and now on netflix it's just not quite there and i it just it just makes a lot of sense that this kind of interactive aspect of being in the room absolutely and and i've done a few gigs on zoom um and it is really interesting not only can you 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 sort of have to do a a set to a blank screen you can't hear the audience laughing and it's very very distancing you kind of know it's happening and that you know the event is happening but there's no sense of actually having done a performance it's very very strange you know you don't get that when comedian we found we did a study a couple of years ago showing that if you add laughter onto the end of jokes people find the jokes funnier and when I said that to a comedian his immediate response was well yeah if I can hear the laughter I become funnier you know so they are affected by the audience and then start shining more so it's it's a virtuous circle uh, in a normal environment and we take a lot of it away in this current situation almost all of it and it becomes very hard I'd never really thought about comedy being a conversation with the audience in that way but it makes total sense now you've said it and I lived in Edinburgh for a few years so of course went along to the festival and you could see the same show two nights running and it would be completely different based on who is in the audience it's really uh, fascinating but I think you know your experience at Bright Club is clearly been an amazing one would you say that you think anyone can do that or anyone can learn to do that because it still sounds terrifying to be honest (laughs) (laughs) it is absolutely terrifying and I I mean I think one of the things that they were finding when they were running Bright Club regularly was that they'd um maybe because of the Brian Cox effect they could get lots of younger males physicists um that you know and and you know chemists would be it would be relatively easy to recruit them and it wasn't difficult to get people from the humanities. I think they were, you know, they were well, well represented. It was harder to get scientists in 
particularly female scientists who were like, had my reaction, like, no way am I doing that? It sounds terrifying. Um, but I do genuinely think anybody can do it. And I think the more likely you are to think that is not for me, the more you absolutely should do it. You know, you because you will actually, it, it, the, I think the worst thing you can do with something like um, stand-up comedy training is think, well, I am hilarious and this is going to be brilliant. You know, So some of the best stand-up ones I've seen have actually been people, you know, audiences, the audiences know what they're getting. They can, they're in London. They don't, you know, they if they wanted to go and see jokes, they can go see someone telling jokes. They want to see scientists and academics talking in a humorous way about their life and their science, you know. And it's it's actually anybody anybody at UCL would be perfect to do that. It's you know, it's it really is, and it's it's a learnable skill. It doesn't sound like it. It's absolutely learnable. So, Sophie, one um, other big part of your role at UCL is being head of department at the ICN. And I'm just wondering how you've found that over the past um, year in the pandemic with everyone working remotely and this, I guess, a, a responsibility of keeping people motivated and engaged when we've all been distributed around the world. It's it's actually very hard to be, um, I don't know, thoughtful about this because it was I'd only been head of department for six months before we went into the fully into the lockdown so the majority of my time being director at the ICN we haven't been at the ICN it's very strange if I go back to my emails now from a I found it difficult when we were coming up to the 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 anniversary of everything starting to speed up really quickly and all the changes happening very fast if I go back and look at my emails from that time I started sending out regular emails to everyone just to say, this is what is happening. This is what you need to know. You've got to go home. You can't come in. This is you need to come in. This is what we have to do. That kind of thing. And I carried on doing that daily. So I've done a daily update, except when we've been on holiday and when I had COVID, for the you know for over a year now. And that started as a way for me to deal with my anxiety. I was fine. It was really scary at the start, and I was finding it hard. And sort of sitting down and and sending an email, giving people information, putting in. You know, we were sharing films to watch and music to listen to and stories and birds we'd seen and that kind of thing and that started as a way to as I say really for me to manage my anxiety and then I thought well it's also now we're all kind of getting thrown all around the world people do you remember people were told to go home if they were you know students from abroad yeah so I thought it really actually matters we were going to get through this we all we are is the community the building doesn't matter it's the people that matter so um I kept on doing it, even when I stopped being completely anxious on this daily basis, just so we had this kind of way of touching base in a way that we would be doing it very normally if we were all in the building. You would just say hello to people when you saw them and we haven't got that. So let's keep that going. And we kept, um, we had daily tea at the ICN during term time organised by different research groups each week. And we kept doing that virtually. And we had parties, um, quizzes and things like that. Just anything to kind of give people a, a, a daily touch base and then other events where we kind of get to hang out if people want to come along on a very small scale like tea or a bigger scale for like quiz nights and stuff like that. And it, it, I think it does matter. I think it is so many people were isolated, particularly students or young people who were in London and didn't have family here and couldn't get home and they were stuck in a room on their own for a year that was you know that was very much who I was thinking about when I was thinking about just staying in in touch with people because we you know it I can't begin to imagine how difficult that is that sense of isolation is at least I was in lockdown with my you know my partner and our child yeah it's definitely made me reflect on I guess what 
like the university, what the community means, because when, when things like all talks are online and when lab members are distributed around the world, it kind of, mm. what does it, what, what does it mean anymore to kind of go to UCL and give a Zoom talk, for instance, rather than going to say NYU and giving a, a Zoom talk and so on. I'm just wondering whether, is there, have you seen any silver linings of that? Like kind of what going forward, even if people maybe have more working from home and working remotely, is there a way of kind of, have we learned any lessons about rebalancing a bit in the future, but still keeping community together? I think I'm very, you know, understanding why people could be thinking, looking for positives in how things we can take away from this. But I think the thing I've really learned is that that so many things are easy to manage when people are in the same building. Like when there are problems and there's issues, it's really hard to deal with those on email or on Zoom or on Teams. You want to sit down with someone or go and grab a cup of coffee, have a chat, or just touch base with someone really quickly, make someone, you know, it's very difficult to say for professional services, people who've been stuck at home doing their job continuously, making sure that they feel like they're valued is easier to do when you are all in the same building. Um, and that's that kind of sense of a community. I feel it's, you can see elements. There will probably are some things I will probably continue sort of keeping people updated in a way. I think there were lots of issues around transparency that, you know, I knew stuff. Well, surely then everyone knows it, you know, but which I didn't do before. And I think that would be something I would take forward. But I think for a for a really happy and productive community of researchers and everybody in the students and everyone, it really does help to be in the same place and sort of, you know, share the breath in the room together, I think. Definitely. And I think we can all hopefully start to feel a bit optimistic that that will return sooner rather than later now. Fingers crossed anyway. That's good. Oh, well, look, we're almost out of time. So we're probably, we're going to need to wrap up this discussion. Thank you so much for such a wide ranging um, conversation on a lot of topics, Sophie. Um, And before we finish, we're planning to ask each of our guests the same question, um, which is what is your favourite fact about the brain? Hmm. Favourite fact about the brain? You're a first guest, so that you've got them all to pick from. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's very big. Um, <laughs> I, it doesn't give up its secrets easily, does it? I, I think one of the things I'm most struck about the brain is the oh, there's so much to love, but I the the sheer sort of flexibility and plasticity of it. The fact that we learn so much in during our brain development as children and you know young adults but then the fact that that rem- that plasticity remains possible or elements of it throughout your entire life i find quite extraordinary like that, and that the power of that plasticity to adapt i mean you know we adapted really quickly to living under covid situations and that was entirely down to our brains you know it's sort of stunning how adaptable humans are and that is a lot of it is to do with our brain's adaptations. And I think that's that's kind of incredible. We sort of probe at it with our little tools, but actually if you take a step back and look at it as a system in action, it's quite extraordinary. Well, that seems like a perfect place to end it. So thank you so much, Sophie, for a fascinating discussion. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories. And we will see you next time. <laughs>